The following recording is from the Parramatta Christian Church pulpit series. These sermons are freely available at pcc.org.au. It's good to come together. I'm really eager to come to the words of God this morning. And so if you've got your Bibles, would you please go ahead and find those? And uh, we're going to come to a passage, or should I say a book this morning, because we're going to do an overview of an Old Testament book, which is all about the supremacy and the beauty and the sovereignty of God. And um, I wonder whether you can guess what book that is. Any guesses? We'll come to that in just a minute. Before we do... It'll be a few gold stars, all right, if you get it right. There's a growing condition that uh, Christian analysts are calling apatheism. Apatheism. How many of you have heard of the term apatheism? Hands up. I think it was one. There's two. You know, I thought that might happen, apatheism. Uh, try saying the term three times quickly. It's a bit of a tongue twister, apatheism. What does it mean, though, apatheism? Apatheism is the attitude of apathy. Apathyism comes from the term apathy or strong indifference towards the existence or non-existence of God. That's apathyism. In other words, an apatheist, someone who subscribes to apathyism, is someone who's not interested in accepting or rejecting the very existence of God. In other words, a growing number of people in our culture, especially those in their 20-somethings, when asked the God question... Do you think God exists? They respond to that question, the question of God's existence, by, resp- by shrugging their shoulders and saying something like, whatever. Whatever. God exists? Oh, whatever. No big deal. God doesn't exist. Whatever. No big deal. According to a lot of Christian analysts who are thinking about these things, they consider the rise of apathyism to be a more serious condition than atheism because atheism and atheists by and large are still concerned about life and death and you know, they, they're still willing to engage um, in conversation about the existence of God. But with the rise of apatheists, a lot of people just can't be bothered thinking about the existence or non-existence of God. It's very alarming. Eric Metaxas, and maybe some of you have heard of Eric Metaxas, he's an American writer and, um, and speaker and also the co-host of a really helpful radio podcast called Breakpoint. I recommend it. It's great. He says this about the rise of apathism. Quote, quote, he says this. It's on your screen. It's coming. Where is it? He says this. If in doubt, go to your notes. Is it there, guys? Just shake your head. He says this. Many people don't care about God, that is, they're apatheists, because, listen to what he says, they don't find him, namely God, compellingly beautiful. In other words, what Eric Metaxas is saying is that the reason why a growing number of people in our culture are shrugging their shoulders about the God question is because they don't see him as truly desirable. They don't see him as compellingly beautiful. When, when they think of God, they have something vague that pops into their minds, or maybe they have an image of an old guy in a cloud with a big beard. But the image of compelling beauty 
doesn't flood their minds. And my question is, what's going to help these people, not only apatheists, but atheists and everyone else for that matter, move from a place of strong indifference, deadly indifference, to a place of actually seeing God as compellingly wonderful? And of course, the answer is, it's when they encounter a people, hopefully a people like us this morning, who have so seen for ourselves the compelling beauty of God that our lives are, here's the key phrase, attractively different. You hear that? Attractively different. And so when apatheists or atheists or anyone else for that matter come into close proximity with this kind of people, they see God. They see something of Christ in us and are drawn to him. Now, what are we thinking about this year? We've been doing this visionary series Hill's been looking at, and we've been thinking about what? The theme of grow. Grow, not an R word, G word this time for the new ministry year. Grow. But growing as what? Growing as people. Growing as people. That is growing in our maturity, growing our discipleship, not only reading the word, but also heeding the word of Christ. And if we are growing as people, we will secondly grow in what? Influence. Yeah? You cannot grow as a disciple or not grow in your impact, grow in your influence. That is, we will be about disciple making. We'll be about coming alongside each other and praying for each other and encouraging one each, uh, each other for, you know, to, in, in the faith. Also, we'll grow in our impact outside of these four walls. We're about speaking up for those who cannot speak for themselves. We'll stand up for those who cannot stand up for themselves. We'll be about love and mercy and justice. We'll live the gospel and share the gospel. We'll extend the kingdom both near and far. Yes, growing in our influence. But listen to me, also we're thinking about growing in what? Our vision. Our vision of who we are in Christ. You know, I was speaking to someone the other day and they said that when that penny dropped for them, the penny of their identity in Christ, their whole world changed for the better. When that penny dropped, when they saw themselves no longer through the eyes of their parents or through the eyes of the culture or through the eyes of themselves, but saw themselves through the eyes of the Father, it was a game changer. Everything changed as they saw themselves as as a child of God. And we're going to be thinking about that kind of more specifically this year, our identity in Christ, but also gaining a vision, growing in our vision of God. I think this is the most fundamental reality, the most fundamental need, because if we don't see God for who he really is, then we're not going to grow as people. And if we don't grow as people, then we're not going to grow in our influence. Uh, It all comes from seeing who God is, right? Having an extended and large view of the person of God, his uh, perfections, his excellences, his character, because, look, listen, growing flows out of knowing. Growing flows out of knowing God. And not only knowing things about God, that's important, but more importantly, growing in our knowledge of God in the inside. Knowing who he is deep within. So this morning, what this sermon is all about is looking at what actually happens in our Christian lives when we see God's compelling beauty. What actually happens when we gain a clearer revelation of who God actually is. Is okay, and so for that, we're going to turn to this incredible book, the book of any guesses? Come on, Isaiah has a great book, Daniel. Daniel, this book that's all about the supremacy and the sovereignty and the beauty of God. And so, look, three propositional statements all drawn from the book of Daniel. And I trust these will be really encouraging. Number one. Those who know their God, or those who gain a clearer revelation of who God is 
have great boldness or energy for God. You hear that? Those who know their God have great boldness for God. Daniel chapter 11, which is a prophetic chapter, we read these words, and hopefully it's going to come up in verse 32. There we go. It says, the people who know their God stand firm and what? Take action. The New King James Version says, those who know their God will take courage and do great exploits. They will carry out great exploits. And when we look at the book of Daniel, that's exactly what we see played out virtually in every chapter. We see a people, Daniel and his three buddies, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, standing up for righteousness, not giving in, not compromising, not being intimidated. Interesting that Rohan had the word of intimidation because in part that's what this sermon's all about, having courage and the things of God, not being shrinking violets, not being kind of uh, intimidated by the culture. And this is what we see in the book of Daniel. For example, in Daniel chapter 1, we read these words in verse 8. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And so as you know, maybe you know the story, he asks for a vegetarian diet. Now, maybe some of you might be thinking, well, that's not very courageous, is it? Or manly, you know, to ask for veggies. You know, blokes eat meat, right? I mean, what's the, the story? Well, there is a story. There's a backstory, And that is that uh, Jerusalem, the, the hometown of Daniel and his friends, it was ransacked by the Babylonian kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar. And they're shipped off. They're carted off to Babylon to be Nebuchadnezzar's men, to be his servants, to be his slaves. And they, they, their names are changed. Their clothes have changed, their whole identity has changed, they're, they're taught the Babylonian language, they're taught the philosophy, and to cap it off, Nebuchadnezzar says, okay, now you've got to eat our food too. And for Daniel, that's a no-go zone. He, he draws a line in the sand and says, I go this far but no further, what's going on? Well, for Daniel, he knew to eat those foods was to dishonor God. Because his God commanded that they eat certain things and not other things. And for him, it was like, I am not going to violate my conscience. I'm not going to defile myself here because I know my God and I am going to stand up for what's right. And so he draws a line in the sand and essentially he's saying to Nebuchadnezzar, look, you can change everything about me. You can change my name. You can change my location, but you will not change my heart. You will not change my faith. And so he's being incredibly bold because, look, you say to a Babylonian king, uh, I don't want to eat your food. I mean, it's, he could have lost his head. What do you mean you don't want to eat our fine steaks? I mean, to the steak for you, all right? But he's bold. He's courageous. And we know the story. God honors him. So Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 6. This time it's not Nebuchadnezzar or the Babylonian Empire. It's, it's uh, King Darius and the Persian Empire. This time, King Darius, he gives this edict where he suspends the practice of prayer. He says, you're not allowed to pray in private or in public. And what does Daniel do? Well, again, draws a line in the sand and says, uh-uh, this far, no further. I am not going to not pray. I'm going to pray. And so he doesn't only pray in private. What does he do? He opens his windows and he prays in full view of the whole empire. And in that, he's saying to Darius, look, Darius, I honor you. I respect you. But I want you to know that you are a small K king. And I worship and I serve the capital K king. He's the king over all kings. And nothing is going to change the fact that he is my God. That you cannot change my faith. I trust in him and nothing you say is ever going to stop me from worshipping him. Talk about courage. 
courage. Why? Why? Because he knew his God. He didn't buckle under the pressure. He wasn't intimidated. He didn't cave in. He didn't become a shrinking violet, but he stood up for that which was right. And church, the same would be true for you and for me if we know our God. Because the promise not only applies to them, but also to us. If we really know our God deep within, then we will carry out great exploits. We will not cave in. I mean, today in our culture, post-Christian nation, things are tough. Things will increasingly become tough. And what are we, to have a victim mentality? No. Are we to be obnoxious? No. But we are to stand firm. What we believe and say what the apostles said in Acts chapter 5, we serve God, we obey him, and ultimately not man. We'll only do that if we know our God. All right? So the first thing is when we have a revelation of who God is, the great one, the great monarch over all monarchies, the great king over all kingdoms, then we'll have the ability to be courageous and stand firm. Number two, secondly, those who gain a clearer revelation of God will not only be bold for God, but they'll have great thoughts of God. Those who know their God have in their minds great, noble, grand thoughts of who God is. Is And again, we go to Daniel for this because obviously he was a man who had a mind that was saturated with great thoughts of God. And we know that because his book, the book of Daniel, gives us one of the finest, grandest portrayals of God anywhere in the scripture. It, it gives us this clear vision of God's unparalleled majesty and his unrivaled sovereignty. And again, this is witnessed in the prayer life of Daniel. And so we turn to Daniel chapter 2 in verse 20, 22. Look, look, at, look at this passage with me. The, the incredible thoughts that Daniel had of God. A massive vista of who God is. Verse 20. He says, praise be the name of God forever and ever. So just pause there. In Daniel's mind, he sees God as the eternal God. He didn't have a beginning. He will not have an end. God existed. He always has. He always will do. He's the eternal God. He's the Alpha and Omega, the beginning, the last, the first. He's, he's and everything in between. He's the eternal God. But then he continues. Not only is the, the God of eternity, he says wisdom and power are his. Now that's a good combination to have. It's not good if you have all power, but you're not all wise. <laughs> that's going to be disastrous. But equally, what's the point of having all skill and all wisdom if you haven't got the ability to bring about your wisdom in the earth? But notice God is all what? Powerful and he is all wise. But then he continues. He changes times and seasons. He disposes kings and raises up others. In other words, Daniel believes that even though he's in exile in this foreign land, that God is in charge. That he's the monarch over all monarchies, as I've said. As as someone rightly said, that history, human history, is his story. It's God's story. He's in charge of all human affairs. He lifts up kings and prime ministers and presidents and he disposed them too because he's the one who's on the throne. This is such a big vision of God but he continues. He reveals, um, sorry, he gives wisdom. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He gives. That is, he's a generous God. You know, we all lack wisdom. Hands up. Yeah, all of us. But he gives it. He's not stingy. It's not like, hey, I'm all-knowing, I'm all-wise, get your own knowledge, get your own wisdom. It's like, you ask me, you come to me, and I'll give it to you. 
I'll give you. If you want to be more discerning, I'm benevolent. I'm generous. I'm kind. I'll give it to you. And he continues. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. What an incredible picture of God here. The eternal one. The one who is overall. The one who knows all secrets. The generous, benevolent God. And then we turn to Daniel chapter 9, which in my mind is one of the finest prayers in the whole Bible. And I encourage you in your own time this afternoon, you know, sit with Daniel chapter 9, read it through, pray it through, your life will never be the same. It gives us such a big vision, a big picture of who our God really is. And so in verse 4 of Daniel 9, he says this, the Lord, the great and awesome God. And then for the rest of this incredible prayer, he unpacks the majesty of God's greatness. And so in verse 4, he talks about the greatness of God's covenant love and faithfulness. In verse 7, he talks about God's greatness in, in the sense of his righteousness, that he alone is righteous. In verse 9, he talks about the greatness of God's mercy and forgiveness, that even though as a people they had sinned, 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 sinned against him, He was kind, 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 kind towards them. Again and again, he was merciful. In verse 14, he magnifies the greatness of God's judgment that he had warned them again and again and they continued in their idolatry and he brought judgment upon them. In other words, God is always true to his word. When he makes promises, he keeps them. And when he says, if you don't do this, this will happen and we continue to do it as they did, It will happen as well because God is not a man that he should lie, we're told, in numbers. He's a a God that is is trustworthy. He he, he always does what is right, we're told, even though he goes on to say, we have not obeyed you. And So such a big vision of who God is. And the same will be true of all of us. When we have this vision, our minds will be filled with God. With God, when we know him, thoughts of God, our brains will be jam-packed, full of God. I wonder, I've been using the term God, I don't know how many times already, maybe 60 times. But I wonder what you've been thinking about every time I've mentioned the term God. Or what has come into your mind when you're hearing me say, God, 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 God. What are you thinking of? Is it a bit hazy upstairs? Your thoughts of God a bit vague? You know, A.W. Tozer, he said this, I haven't mentioned this for many years. He said, great quote. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. You hear that? What comes into your mind, what comes into mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. It's the most important thing about me. In other words, what Tozer is saying is that the true measure of a person's greatness is his thoughts concerning God. Not not his money, not his intellect, not his might, not his strength, but what goes on in your brain when you hear God, when you think of God, when you read about God in Scripture. That, that is the most definitive thing, the, the, the true measure of who you really are as a person. If we know God, then our minds will be filled with him, with him with great thoughts of him, just like Daniel. So those who know their God, those who have this compelling vision of who he is, will be bold for him. Amen. We need that. And also our minds will be full of him, full of God and his glory and his wonder and his spectacular worth. And lastly, our minds or our, we will also be full of contentment. Full of contentment. Those who know their God will be bold. They will have 
minds full of God, but they will also be full of contentment in God. Contentment in him, peace in him. Let me take you to Daniel chapter 3. This is it's an incredible, one of my favorite passages in, in Daniel, uh, stories in Daniel. It's uh, Daniel's three threads, Meshach, Shadrach, and, and the other guy. And, and Nebuchadnezzar, we're back with him and the Babylonian Empire, he's given this edict. And it's, you, essentially, it's bow or burn. He's erected this huge statue, and he says, you bow, you burn. And these three lads, like Daniel, they draw a line in the sand and say, uh, 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 Mr. Nebuchadnezzar, we're not going to do that. We only bow to one. We bow to, we bow to God. We bow to Yahweh. And, and Nebuchadnezzar, he, he hears of this, and he is furious, like, seriously furious. He drags these young guys into his courts, and he says to them, verse 15, he says, I'm going to give you one more chance. He says, you, when you hear the music, you bow, otherwise you will burn. I will throw you headfirst into the fiery furnace. And, 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 and what do they do in response? How, how do they respond? Well, let's, let's go to the text. We join the narrative in verse 16 of chapter 3. Listen to their words. Talk about contentment. They say this. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, O Nebuchadnezzar, so they're off to a good start. All right? We do not need to defend ourselves before you. Now just pause there. Can you discern any alarm in their words at all? Absolutely not. There's no panic at all. They're standing in front of the most powerful man on the planet. This was not an empty threat, but bow or burn. This was not an empty threat, like kind of, you know, one of those empty threats that we parents sometimes give our little ones. I mean, in my household, there's a lot of those at times, you know, empty threats, trying to get our kids to do something they ought to be doing. Hey, you tidy your room, you know, you play your violin, you do your homework, otherwise you're not coming out to the restaurant with us tonight. It's like, what a completely empty threat. Why? Because I want to go to the restaurant. Nothing's going to stop me from having Thai. It's a completely empty threat. Well, this was an empty threat. It's bow or burn. And so look at their contentment, verse 17. Their confidence, their faith. He says, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. Wow. He will rescue us from your, your power, your majesty. I love that. How they just throw that in, your majesty. Verse 18. But even if he doesn't, there's a little out clause for God there. It's good theology. He says, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. You know what they're saying? They're saying, live or die, we're content. That's what, live or die, we are okay. We are at peace. We have contentment. Why? Because they knew the great majesty. They knew the one over Nebuchadnezzar and they're essentially saying to him, hey, our lives, our destiny is not in your hands, O noble Nebuchadnezzar, your majesty, but in his hands, in God's hands. And so that gave them the ability to be full of contentment in the face of death. That's incredible. Who who wants to be more like these young guys? Seriously. Often when things come our way, it's like, we freak out, we become intimidated. But oh, if we know our God, if we really, truly on the inside, not only know things about God, 
It's one thing to know these things. Oh, yes, Lewis, we've read this passage. Oh, yes, Lewis, you talk about these things most of the time. Yeah, but do we really know these things on the inside? Because if we do, then when hardship comes our way, we won't be fretting, 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 fretting. We'll be secure in who we are in Christ. We will experience contentment, this peace that will give us the ability to stand up for that which is true, for that which is right. Yes? So these three things, incredible things from the book of Daniel. When we see God for who he really is, when we know him, we will have great boldness for him. Also, we'll have great thoughts for him and we'll have great contentment in him. Now, I'm pretty sure that all of us then want to grow in our knowledge of God. Yeah? Surely, all right, since this is the fruit of knowing God and as we're thinking about this year, a greater vision of God, hopefully we'll say, I want that greater vision of God. I want to grow in my understanding and knowledge of who he really is. So these things are true of me, courage and great thoughts of him and contentment in him. And so where should we start? Where should we start? Well, in conclusion, let me just give you two words here just to get us going, just to help us out. Two words, meek and seek. This is how we begin. Meek and seek. Meek, what do I mean? Meek meaning we first need to have the humility to acknowledge that we need to grow in our knowledge of God. That's what meekness is. It's being humble enough to say, you know what, I haven't got it all worked out, I haven't got you worked out, and I need to grow in my understanding of who you are. That's the best posture to take. In fact, that pleases God. When we take that posture and say, look, even if you've been a Christian for one week or 50 years, hey God, you say, there's so much to you to know. You are a bottomless ocean. You're a mountain I cannot reach the top of. And I will, for all eternity, be learning new things about you. And so I come, Lord God, to you, and I just ask, Lord, would you help me? This is how you're to pray, meekly. Lord, would you help me understand your word? Lord, I don't want to skim it through. I don't want to neglect your word. Also, Lord God, when, we, when I go to church, help me understand the preaching of your word. And Lord God, when I'm standing there in worship, open the eyes of my heart, Lord, so that I may behold you, that I may see you. That's a posture of meekness. And God will honor you for that. That brings much pleasure to him when we have this humility, this meekness. So meek, that's the best place to start, meek. Not saying, oh yeah, I've got it all figured out. No, 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 God resists the proud, he gives grace to the humble. Meek. Secondly, seek, seek. What do I mean? In practice... We are to take God at his word. And what is his word? Well, he says this to us in Jeremiah 29, verse 13. He says, you will seek me and you will find me. Now, that's a great promise. You will seek me. Okay, I will. And you will find me. Okay, great. Awesome. Well, what's the precondition? Well, follow the verse. What does it say? You will find me. You will seek me. When what? You seek me with all your what is it? Heart. So what's going to achieve that in our lives? What's going to help us do that? What's going to move us to so seek God that we find him? What's going to move us to seek him, God, with all our hearts because we want to know him better? What's, what's going to do that? What's, what's going to change in our hearts that we actually seek him? Well, let me take you back to Daniel chapter 3. We know the story up until this point. They've been threatened. You, you bow or burn. And what do they do? Well, they defy the king. They are righteously rebellious. And they say, no can do. 
And so he's furious. He binds these young Jewish lads. He asks his men to turn up the furnace seven times and they chuck them in. And it's so hot that his advisors, they are consumed by the flames and they're in that fiery furnace. And sometime later, we're not too sure how long after, Nebuchadnezzar, he sees something that blows him away. He looks into that fiery furnace and he sees something. And he says to his advisor, look, look, there's, there's, there's four men walking around in the flames. Did we, we chucked in three, right? We bound and we chucked three in, but now there, there are four. And, and then he says, they're unbound and they're unharmed. And then he says to his advisor, this one resembles, listen, a son of God. A son of God. Now, Bible scholars, the majority of Bible scholars, think that this fourth mysterious person here in the flames, the fury of these flames, was none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Christ Jesus in his pre-incarnate state, here, unbinding, rescuing, liberating these young Jewish lads and shielding them from the fury of the flames and the fury of this earthly king. And when we stop to think of it, This makes a lot of sense, right? That this is Christ here. Because listen, isn't this story of salvation here in Daniel 3 a precursor to what we see happening on the cross? That Jesus, this time, being bound himself, just like these Jewish lads, but not with rope, but with nails fastened to the cross. And him experiencing not literal flames, but the flames of God's hot hatred, Against our defiance, not our righteous rebellion like those boys, but our rebellion against him. Jesus on the cross, absorbing the wrath, not of an earthly king, but the heavenly king against our defiance. He is Jesus on the cross, saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Listen, Jesus saves us. And this, this, when we see Jesus doing this for us, as he did for those young Jewish boys, rescuing them from certain death. When we see Jesus doing this for us on the cross, saving us from judgment, the fires of hell, this is what will melt our hearts and cause us to seek God with all of them. Why? Because God now is not an angry God against us. He's not an indifferent God. He's not inactive or passive. He's this affectionate Father who wants us to know Him more and know Him better. And that's won for us. Christ has won that for us, this privilege. And so now, with our hearts that have been melted with the love of God in Christ Jesus, we can seek Him with all of these hearts and we will find Him. And God says, hey, you draw close to me and I'll draw close to you. Amen? That's the promise. You see, our hearts will not be melted any other way. This thought of God's costly loving Jesus is the greatest thought that can ever occupy the human mind. His costly love as we survey his wondrous cross. And so I pray that as we do, we'll be drawn into his presence. We'll be drawn and we will know him better as Abba Father. And in knowing him better, we'll be courageous. We'll have great thoughts of him. And we'll have great contentment in him. How about we pray? If I could ask Tim. Thanks, guys.
we reflect on this, I just want us to consider a, a prayer that A.W. Tozer actually prayed in his wonderful book, The Pursuit of God. He prayed this way. He said, Father, I, I long to be filled with more longing. I want to want you more. I want to know you. I want to see you more clearly. And so, Heavenly Father, would you help me? Would you help us move from a place of vagueness to knowing who you really are and having such a compelling vision of your beauty and glory that our lives become attractively different. So that, Lord God, others may see you in us and be drawn to you. Thank you, Lord. Can I ask you to stand, please, church?